Thank you for leading us in prayer, Pastor. And Kathy and I appreciate your continued prayers for our mothers. Her mother, Nancy, will be undergoing a kyphoplasty procedure on Thursday because of a compression fracture in her back. My mom was just yesterday in urgent care. She's been struggling with some respiratory issues again. And so, like all of you, our family stands in need of prayer. And so I call your attention to God's Word, Luke chapter 9, where today we find ourselves considering verses 10 through 17. Luke 9, 10 through 17, the beloved physician who takes us through the life of the Lord Jesus, expounding for us his glorious ministry. As we realize that all of our hope, all of our confidence is tied up in this person, the Lord Jesus. Reminding you of a very apt quote, I think, by John R. W. Stott, who said years ago that Christianity is Jesus Christ. It isn't just that we follow his teaching, we actually trust in him. And so as Luke proclaims Christ for us, we realize that he is the essence of the good news. Not just a a way of living, but he is life itself. So let's look together, reading our text. Luke 9, beginning with verse 10. Remember, this is the word of God. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so. And had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. How much is enough? People are often asking that sort of question, whether it's when you get a plate of food set before you at a restaurant, or whether when you're looking at your bank account. How much is enough? We're living in a world, of course, that is encumbered by scarcity. Many of us, perhaps have planned out or thought about what we might eat today, what we might eat in this upcoming week, and much of the population of the world has no idea where the next meal is coming from, let alone the next several. Scarcity is a part of life, and it's a reality. But what we see here in this passage, in this episode in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus is astounding. It is something that is covered by all four of the Gospel writers, which in itself is unusual. You know, they, each of them, give us different aspects and perspectives on things, sometimes different stories altogether, particularly John. We refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels because they track with each other so closely. John gives us a different perspective than they do. 
And yet all four of them recount this miracle. It's not the only time that Jesus performs a miracle and feeds a multitude, but this is one of them. And it happens right after the apostles, of course, have been sent out. They have been sent out to preach the kingdom of God and to cast out demons and to heal those who have diseases. And so they come back and they're, they're telling Jesus about all that they've done. Imagine. Now, the greatest of all miracle workers, the Lord Christ, who is himself God, has the apostles reporting to him and them telling him what they've been able to do. And yet Jesus would one day tell them, apart from me, you can do nothing. But even so, they were reporting back. And so there was physical exertion involved in all of this. They were tired. They had been exerting themselves in the course of ministry. The Lord Jesus, of course, who always was going about doing good, oftentimes was in need of rest. After all, he fell asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm once upon a time. So they withdraw. They pull apart from the crowd, so they thought. They get only a brief rest, going to the place called Bethsaida. But the crowd learns, you know. They find out where this Savior has gone, find out where he and his disciples have departed to, and they go there too. They follow them. They perhaps, you know, following around on the edge of the lake, taking a circuitous route, and uh, they're, they're intent on getting there too. And we wonder what kind of response this might garner in the tiredness and weariness of life and ministry. And yet we see here words of hope, a recording of an act on the part of the Lord Jesus that as much as the miracle itself should be a source of hope for all of us, for having followed him, he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Very simply, the Lord Jesus receives all who come to him. You know, there's ways that we could flesh that out. We could spruce it up. We could make this a really lengthy and profound point. But it's worth saying it in its simplicity. That Jesus welcomes, receives all who come to him. He did not turn them away on this occasion. You could easily see him saying, well, come back tomorrow. Give us some time. He did, after all, have his human limitations, even though he was fully God. But he doesn't do that. He receives them, even welcomes them. He doesn't just tolerate them. He acts in a way as if, because he is, glad that they are there. That encourages me tremendously. As I think about the wee hours of the night, as burdens come to us, whether it's Kathy and I thinking of our mother's condition, or like the rest of you, other family matters that weigh in upon us heavily, you know, in my mind, I could easily picture there in that heavenly scene someone saying, it's him again. What do you want me to do with him this time? But there's none of that. There is that welcoming and that receiving and glad that you're here. I think of my experience growing up, which I know has not been the experience of everyone, but having parents who always at least acted like they were glad when I showed up. Now, there was that one time that Kathy and I came home and we didn't have our children with us. And there was that initial expression of fallen faces, but then they quickly recovered and said, Oh, it's good to see you. <laughs> but my mother would often say, You don't ever need an invitation. I can hear her saying it now. 
And it's as if the Lord Jesus says that to us. He welcomes us. And so don't make light of this. Don't just pass over it. When they learned and followed him, he welcomed them. And what does he do? He speaks to them of the kingdom of God. He preaches to them. He proclaims that the kingdom of God has come. What is that all about? Well, I don't often reference the quotes that you have in your bulletin, but Tim Keller, who's gone home to be with the Lord, leaves us a, a wonderful thought. Traditional religion says, I give God a good moral record, so he has to bless me. The gospel says, God gives me a good moral record through Christ, so I want to bless him. Religion says, if I obey, then God will love and accept me. The gospel said, God loves and accepts me, therefore I want to obey. This proclamation of, this declaration of the kingdom of God, that God has accomplished what is necessary for salvation himself, so that it dispels any notion of our ever hoping or ever thinking or working at some achievement that would commend me to God so that he would accept me. That, my brother and I would call it a squirrel cage. You know, those little things that they have in hamster cages where the hamster goes round and round. You know, there's a particular fan that you often find in a home heating or cooling system, that, that circular fan in there. We just always call it a squirrel cage fan. And sometimes we feel like if we can just get that wheel spinning fast enough, that we can achieve that destination. But there's no possible way ever, ever to perform righteously enough so that God would accept us. But the good news of the kingdom is Christ has come and fulfilled that righteousness so that we are accepted by God on the basis of his perfect obedience. We have assurance in that. The Lord Jesus said in John 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that comforting to know? That in coming to him, we don't have to worry that he would ever say, well, I'm out of room. You should have come yesterday. I just don't have time for you today. We can be assured of his uh, welcoming us. And so that, I think, is, a, is an important point to make here as we see it in the text. And of course, not only was he preaching, but he was curing them, healing them. He was giving, he was giving credence. He was giving evidence of the truthfulness of what he said. He was backing up his words by his actions. If you have any reason to question the truthfulness of the Son of Man, whether or not he speaks from God, then we see these verifying miracles, these indicators that he is in fact proclaiming truth. Otherwise, these miracles could never have happened. They authenticate him, in other words, as he proclaims the kingdom of God. And so he's experiencing that work of God's kingdom, which is a foretaste of what ultimately is going to happen. For inasmuch as we believe in the Lord Jesus, we know that one day, even if we don't experience immediate healing, and let's face it, most of us do not, we are encumbered by bodies that are wasting away. As the scriptures declare, outwardly I'm wasting away, but inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. And yet there's coming a day. And ultimately, there will be no sickness, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering, no more tears. Perfect, continual state of healing. That is promised for all who are in Christ. And this is just a a microcosm experience of that or demonstration of it so that we might all see. And he does this openly. It's all witnessed. 
So that when writers like Luke, along with Matthew and Mark and John, as they, as they write down these accounts and as they are disseminated, there were people still living who were eyewitnesses to these things. Had they not been true, there would have been a, you know, a whole host of people who said, whoa, that never happened here. That say it, I don't know where that is. There was nobody by the name of Jesus who lived there. These documents would have never seen any more the light of day. But because they portray, they, they convey truthful history, they are still with us, authenticated by those in that generation who experienced the Lord Jesus themselves, who gave a hearty amen to what was read to them in those local bodies of believers. But there's a problem in there. All this, uh, all this work is going on, this ministry is taking place, but they gets along. It gets past noon. The day is wearing away, as was the expression. There's no food. They're in a desolate, desolate place. There's no way to feed them. That's always an issue, isn't it? I remember a lady who uh, was notorious in the community for when people would come by. At some point, as they were sitting out on the porch, they said, she would say to her husband, Well, Fred, we better go in and eat so these folks can get on home. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but she had that reputation. How are we going to feed these people? After all, sustenance is a necessity. And disciples make a mistake in this. <laughs> they, they assume the place where they can instruct Jesus rather than listen to him. Now let's cut up a break, alright? They, they've been out on this great ministry endeavor where they have been preaching and they have been healing and great miracles have been performed. So, you know, they, they, they've got a little street cred here. They, they feel like they can, they can speak into this matter. And after all, they're looking after the interests of the crowd, right? We don't have anything to feed them here, so send them somewhere where they can be fed. It was a brilliant idea. But the problem is, they're talking instead of listening. And that's exactly the dilemma that we find ourselves in. We are too quick to speak and too slow to listen. And the sooner we learn that the Lord does the instructing and we do the listening, the better off we are. Send them away to the surrounding villages and countryside. Somebody there can take care of it. Give them lodging. Give them provisions. This place is desolate as if that was news to Jesus. But, don't you love those in Scripture? But, he said to them, Now, who's going to get schooled here? It's the disciples who will do the learning. Which is the way it is supposed to be. You and I as disciples are always to submit ourselves to Him, learning from Him. After all, it reminds us of Job 38, 1 through 2, doesn't it? After Job and his friends had said all that they had said, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Is that not a commentary on every generation that has ever lived since the fall? Who is it? who thinks they know something. And so, Jesus 
speaks. Not send them away. You give them something to eat. Can't you see them all? There must have been one of those deer in the headlight moments. What? How? With what? By implication. Keep listening. Keep listening. Keep watching. The lesson is on its way. You know, we don't have any more than these five loaves and two fish. I remember Frank Barker speaking on this some years ago. He said, basically, what you've got enough here for, along with the fish, you've got enough for two fish sandwiches and a roll left over. Think about that. Slice those two. It works. There's not near enough. And when it says that there are 5,000 men, it has often been said that that's just counting the men. That if you take this by way of inference, there could have been as many as 15,000 people there when you count women and children. Or perhaps that is the total number. It's not my purpose to get into that and, and, and uh, to art, or expound or pontificate on what the number actually was. It's clear you've got a tiny bit of food in comparison to the huge population of people. And herein we divine this glorious lesson that with divine power the Lord Jesus supplies not just what we need but more note what happens while they object and saying you know how are we going to provide for them he takes what's there he has the people to sit down in groups of 50 he organizes this thing Clearly, he's Presbyterian. <laughs> it's going to be done decently and in order. I'm kidding. Please don't get offended. But Jesus organizes this. He says, get the people ready because a supply is coming. Now, he could have produced the food first, but he doesn't. Get ready. I'm going to supply everything that's needed and more. Organize in these groups of 50 or so about that. Another gospel account tells us there were groups of hundreds and fifties. And then he takes the loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. So make no mistake. This is not magic. It's not an incantation. He's not doing anything by sleight of hand. He is appealing to heaven and in dependence upon the heavenly father... He demonstrates to all of those witnesses and to us that this is a bona fide miracle. He takes items of food which aren't near enough even to begin feeding these masses. But as he blesses this provision, as he gives thanks to the Lord for this provision, as he offers it up in thanksgiving and dedicating it to the Lord, then he distributes, breaking the loaves, giving the disciples to set before the crowd. That's it. Now, had this matter been the result of imagination, fanciful writers in the early centuries of the church trying to produce some compelling story that would cause people to be followers of the Lord Jesus, had this been the product of human imagination, I would imagine at this point that it would there would be a lot more to this. It would be a lot 
more flowery. We would see a lot more creativity in the language and about the way that the miracle took place and perhaps a few anecdotes on the side, but there's none of that. It's presented to us plain and simple, just like you would expect an historical account to be delivered. We don't know about the mechanics of the multiplication of these food items. When did it actually take place? Did it happen at the moment that he prayed? Or did it take place as he distributed the items? People conjecture about that. I'm here to tell you, there's a lot of ink that has been used in writing commentaries to try to prove when the actual increase of the food items happened. We don't know. The writer doesn't see a need to tell us. What matters is that there was more than enough. By the way, it's also worth noting that you've got an accumulation of people here from every walk of life. It is perfectly reasonable to assume that not only do you have Jews, but you also have Gentiles. You have the clean with the unclean. And there's no ceremonial washing that takes place here, as would be expected, to wash away the uncleanness. It's not a point in the text, but it is something that's worth noting because we assume that they were in mixed company and therefore this notion of cleanness would have been an issue. But because the Lord Jesus is the one doing the distributing, he is showing to us that the kingdom of God is for all, not just for God's old covenant people, but in the new covenant, all are to be included. And therefore, as he gives forth these items, all are clean. And so they ate and were satisfied. Isn't that great? They didn't get just a little bit. They had enough. They were satisfied. And they had leftovers. I put in length the quotation by J.C. Ryle because I think it's just so wonderful. The 19th century Anglican churchman from England, he makes a scanty supply of victuals that's Littles, for those of you from the southern part of the United States. He makes a scanty supply of victuals, which was barely sufficient for the daily wants of himself and his disciples, satisfy the hunger of a company as large as the Roman Legion. There could be no mistake about the reality and greatness of this miracle. It was done publicly and before many witnesses. The same power which, at the beginning, made the world out of nothing, caused food to exist, which before had not existed. The Savior of sinners is all thine. He calleth those things which be not as though they were. When he wills a thing, it shall be done. When he commands a thing, it shall come to pass. He can create light out of darkness, order out of disorder, strength out of weakness, joy out of sorrow, and food out of nothing at all. Forever let us bless God that it is so. In this extraordinary provision, Christ demonstrates that he is what we need and he is all that we need because not only does he supply our needs, he gives us abundantly more. Grace that is more than sufficient. Grace that not only covers all of our transgressions, but is such that even a million years from now, for those who have trusted in Christ, not only will you owe your salvation and rescue from this world and have a place in heaven, but you will be kept in heaven. Aren't you thankful that 10,000 years from now an angel is not going to show up and say, well, 
This is as far as the payment will carry. We've enjoyed your company thus far. No such thing will ever happen. An inexhaustible supply. As surely as we are saved by grace on earth, we will be kept by grace in heaven above. And because the supply is inexhaustible, we never have to worry about overextending our stay. I don't know. That just really makes me almost want to shout. Because of the joy in seeing how that the Lord Jesus demonstrates grace through the multiplication of bread and fish. These, you know, very simple, ordinary elements. And of course, we have to think of the Lord's Supper as Jesus broke the bread and gave it to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. A reminder to us that he is the one who supplies, for he is the bread of life. And that cup that is representative of his blood, also in an inexhaustible supply. How many of my sins can be covered by the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross? Every single one of them. And not only all of my sins, but the sins of all who believe in Christ. Never can we exhaust the supply. And so in Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21, in that wonderful benediction, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, Here is a word that is found only in the New Testament, coined by the Apostle Paul as he was prone to do that from time to time. And the word literally means something like super abundantly. It is more than abundant. It is extraordinarily abundant, exceedingly abundant. He who is able to do far more in super abundance than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We, objects of his grace, never having to worry a moment about whether the supply is sufficient for our need. Whether or not our need may be met. Yes, there are twelve baskets of broken pieces. Somebody was there counting. That's how we have it. Isn't that that neat? Somebody or bodies, had to notice the pieces were there, instructions were given, they were gathered up, and they just wanted to know how much is left of Twelve baskets full. And everybody was satisfied. And so we learn much from this glorious miracle, this simple recounting of an event that happened so long ago that tells us so much about our present and gives us assurance for our future. And it begs the question, why would we want to worship anyone else? Why would we want to follow anyone else? Who can do this? Who can, who can duplicate what Christ has done? Other people can wave the hand and probably by way of illusion make us think that they're actually doing something that is significant or powerful. But Jesus actually performs the task. He actually does what he says he will do. And no matter how we may be disappointed by people in our lives, Jesus always comes through. And his power is never in question. That's good news. Good news of God's kingdom. Good news of the real Savior. He's able. Bless his name. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do rejoice and give thanks for Christ our Savior and all of the glorious provision that he has made for us. Thank you that in the telling of this miracle, We again are reminded of our hope and confidence 
in a grace that is greater than our sin. To know that where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. And oh, how we praise your holy name. And so our Father, please open our eyes that we may see more and more the wonders that you have accomplished through your Son. I pray that you will accomplish that work of new life. That you will sanctify those who believe and save anyone who might be hearing this and realizing for the first time that indeed Christ is a great Savior and would fly to Him. Oh, let it be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Grace, greater than our sin. Let's stand together as we sing these wonderful words.